0: Today's message is entitled On Task, talking about getting ready for the return of Christ. And I want to begin with a quote by Charles Allen on the top of your handout sheet, if you'd take a look at that. He said this, he said, before we do our best, and indeed, we're going to be studying a lot about doing things for the kingdom of God, doing our best. He said, before we do our best, we must first be our best and the first step Is Right relationship with Christ. So here's something you must understand in the message today. I'm going to talk a lot about doing things for the kingdom of God, but that is absolute absurdity if you don't have a relationship with God. You cannot do stuff for God if you are not with God because it doesn't count. You're not getting any credit for it. There is some belief in the world today that somehow you're going to try to uh, make God like you better because you're going to do a bunch of stuff for Him. That is not going to cut it. That is not going to fly. Christianity, according to the Bible, is very much not a works-based concept, but a grace-gift concept. Concept. It is more relational in nature. It's do you know Jesus? Has he extended his mercy to you? That is what Christianity is about. It is not about performing. How do I make God love me more than he does right now? What can I do to earn my way to heaven? All that is garbage. It is not true. But one thing we're going to learn today is we can at least have an understanding and a respect for people that do see that. Because if you don't look at scripture accurately, it's very simple to fall into that trap. So I want to begin today with letting you know it is not works based. And even after we read what we read today, still not works based. It's gift based. Now. We last time we met when we did the Christmas part, I'm talking about the time before that when we were in part 22 of Matthew, Jesus told three parables about getting ready for his coming, his return, because Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen. Amen. Now he's coming again. So he says, let me tell you three stories on how to be prepared for this. And one of the stories was the parable of the fig tree. And that was the one we're saying, when you see the leaves turning, you know that summer is coming. And it was this whole idea of just be ready and watch. And then there was another parable about Noah's day, if you remember that. When the flood was about to hit, nobody cared, nobody paid attention, everybody was just doing regular life stuff, and then it caught him off guard. And then there was the good and the bad servants, where the guy said the king's a long time in coming back, and he starts beating other people and throwing his life away. So Jesus has already told three parables about getting ready for his return. He's about to tell three more now. From where I come from in my studies, I've always been taught that if the Bible repeats something, it's important. If the Bible tells it six times, it's really important. Why does he keep emphasizing the same thing over and over and over again? Because it's that desperately important. He's trying to get across... To the apathetic, the people that don't care, the people that check out, the people that don't believe it, that yes, it's real. Yes, it's true. This is not a message for the little paranoid folks. Now, there are some of you out there like me. I'm paranoid about everything, right? So I'm nervous all the time that God somehow disappointed in me or I'm doing something wrong. This is not a message for you because the fact that you're freaked out means that you own it, right? Right? You know that God is real. You know that he's going to return. Your fear is that you're going to be caught off guard, right? But what he's talking to are all the folks that checked out. The minute I started my sermon, they're like, whatever. Okay, he's talking about God again. Oh, Jesus is returning. Okay, man, it's been like 2,000 years. It's not going to happen. That's who he's talking to. So all of you that just went to sleep, wake up. I'm preaching to you, right? So a series of parables about getting ready. And the heart of today's message is the fill in the blank in front of you. It is this. Every day is one step closer. Every day is one step closer to answering for our actions. Every day is one step closer to answering for our actions. That is not a threat. That is merely a fact. So all we're trying to do is say, listen, at some point you've got to own up to who you are and how you live. And that's getting closer each and every day. Now, there was two audiences that will be largely struck by these parables. The first was the original audience of the leaders of the Jews, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, elders, those kind of guys, because they were not prepped for Jesus to come the first time. The second group that's going to be hit by it is us. Will we be ready for his second entrance into our world? And do we live as if he is now? That's the question for us today. So let's dive right into it. Matthew chapter 25, verse one, if you haven't turned there already, it's page 702 in the Bible's handed to you. 702, uh, make it a little bit easier for you. Matthew chapter 25, verse one, page 702. Uh, And it's before we get into scripture, we always pray for the word. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we need to see what it is that you want us to see. We have to understand it. We have to get it. And just me talking about it and sharing my information is not sufficient. This is spiritually discerned. These are things that need to go into our hearts. These are things that need to change us. And that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you move freely amongst us? Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And challenge us where we need to be challenged. We submit ourselves under your teaching today in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how the parable begins. The first story we refer to as the parable of the ten virgins. Um, and it starts like this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Okay, the first thing you've got to know automatically is that a lot of times when Jesus talks about parables, he's using the present tense. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he means right now. But right here, there's two future tense. At that time, the kingdom of heaven, or it says the kingdom of heaven will be like, right? So it's all about something in the future. So the original hearers of this, the original readers of this knew that something was going to occur in the future. Now, there's a big debate as to whether or not it's already occurred. I do not believe that it's already occurred. However, there are many scholars that do believe that it's already happened. So this is a future statement. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. All right, I'm already lost. The weddings nowadays are nothing like the weddings in the Bible. So you start reading this, you're like, I don't get it. First of all, who are these virgin girls? Okay, it merely means that they were unmarried young ladies and they were going to be involved in a wedding. That's all we know. We don't know anything else about them. We don't know if they're bridesmaids. We don't know how much they knew the bride. We don't know how much they knew the groom. We know nothing about them. But we do know that marriages and weddings were very, very different than modern-day America. Now, do we know exactly what they were like? No. As a matter of fact, I read a lot of commentaries in prepping for my sermons, and one of the commentaries I read is called the NICNT. I don't know if you've heard of that before. It's a new international commentary of the New Testament. It's really big, really intelligent, really boring. Okay, so you you may want to pick that up if you need to sleep. Okay, so... I have to read this stuff. You don't, apparently. So I'm looking through this, and I thought it was really neat because we got to this section in the book, and they said, we don't know very much about weddings. (laughs) And they said, we need to just admit it. They said, we're speculating a lot. We're grabbing from other cultures, and we're trying to say stuff about these first century weddings, but we really don't know. And I love it when someone will just own up and say, I don't know, we're guessing. But we can get some general concepts. Let's say we even take the Middle East modern day. It's very different than our weddings. And then go back in tradition and start going, well, what was it like before? Well, what was it like then? Well, what was it like then? And begin to do some study. And here's what we do know, at least in part is that we know that the weddings in general kind of went like this. You would start out at the bride's house. Now, they were very community-based when they did their weddings. Now, in Autonomy America, modern day, we do everything individually. We send out and selectively get a certain amount of people to come to our wedding, and we only give them the invitations. No one else can find us. When they did it, it was a whole village gig everybody was involved so it's kind of like hey i don't really know you but i saw you at the fish market i think you're kind of cool i'll go to your wedding it was that kind of thing right everybody was involved in this thing kind of acquaintances and people that you knew through other people they would all kind of gather together and try to make a special day for the couple that was going to get married so they start out at the bride's house and they do some sort of ceremony um how the ceremony works i'm not quite sure But then what they would do is they would lead in a procession through the village many times at night for show, and they would end up at the groom's house. Then that would kick off a big old party season, because when you arrive there, like in our world, we go away for a honeymoon in their world. They stay because when you come from a largely a poor environment, it's really, really cool For like a week or so to be treated like kings and queens and everybody dotes on you and everybody brings you stuff. So you have one huge long party and you bring your best friends to enjoy it with you. So you got to have that in mind when we start out with this, because that's who these gals are. They're going to be along the way as the procession moves. You go, now, why are they doing it at night? Well, as I mentioned, it's probably largely for show. What you would do is you'd strike up and carry these amazing lights and everybody would dance and have fun. And one commentary said they always go the long route. They go all the long way through the village because they're trying to draw it out and make it dramatic and have more people clap for them and more people wish them well. The whole idea is to make it dramatic. So that's where we pick up the story. It will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Okay, those of you the little theologians, let me make some statement real quick. It did not say five were chosen and five were not. It did not say five were predestined five were not. If you are on the Calvinist side of things, whatever you make this parable out to be, it cannot be about salvation. Because everything about this parable is about personal responsibility. You understand? So you've got to make it about something else. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying, make sure that you have to read this properly. If you believe in the idea of predestination to an an extreme degree, you need to realize that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. He talks about that in other areas, but right here, he's talking about personal responsibility. It's the exact same language that is used when there were two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder who built his house upon rock and sand. It's the same concept. So whatever we're supposed to take away from this lesson Is about what we need to do. This is about stuff we need to do, not about what God's going to accomplish on our behalf. Okay? We got that. Now we move forward. It said, Five were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oils and jars, oil and jars along with their lamps. Now, what are we talking about? These are not little Aladdin rub the genie out things. This is not what we're talking about. These are this is much better translated torches because what would happen is you got a big old stick and a bunch of cloth wrapped around the top. You soak it in oil, and then you take out your Bic lighter, and boom, light that sucker ablaze, right? Now, I don't know how they're either doing flints or they're cracking two rocks together. I have no idea what they're doing. But anyway, you light it up, and you got about a 15-minute burn. That's the estimation that the scholars have. you got about a 15-minute burn on your torch. Then, when it goes out, you got to re-soak it in a jar of oil, light it up again. you got another 15-minute burn, right? We all following this? Okay, so the wise ones said, I brought my jar of oil because I have no idea how long this is going to take. The foolish one said, eh, I'll guesstimate it. I think we're pretty close to the groom's house. By the time they arrive here, we're not even going to need it. About 15 minutes. Boom. We walk in, everything's good. We're done. I don't, I don't want to bother putting in the effort. It's not a big deal. I don't want to try that hard. I don't need to carry extra oil. This is ridiculous. Ah, and it burns them. Huh? That's a pun. Okay. Moving on. The <laughs> That wasn't even funny. Verse six, uh, it says, uh, verse five, the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Two things you need to know about that. Number one, Jesus kept saying it was a long time in coming. Well, now it's been 2000 years and Jesus hasn't returned, but he gave a real extreme indicator. Every story he keeps saying, and it was a long time. Then it came when they weren't expecting. It said what? They all became drowsy and fell asleep. So did the foolish ones fall asleep? Yeah, did the wise ones fall asleep? Yeah, this is not a story about staying awake. Are we all clear? Because if you read at the end of the story, you're going to be paranoid and think that's what it means. It does not mean stay awake. It means be prepped so that when you do fall asleep, it's not a big deal. Are we all clear on that? This is a story about preparing. This is a story about being ready. This is not a story about being paranoid and constantly staying awake. And, oh my gosh, there he is. And there he is. And let's constantly read this. And I got to read the newspaper. And I got to run here. And, oh my gosh, let's sell everything and run up on the cliffs. And let's buy a robe. Right? (laughs) This is not what it's about. This is about living normal life with a constant understanding of the presence of Jesus. This is about being okay to where it's all right to fall asleep. It's all right to go to work. It's all right to play because your heart is locked in Christ on a day to day basis. That's what this is about because they all fell asleep. Then it says at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Basically, to be nice to the people along the route, they would have screamer guy. That would run out ahead and let them know and go, oh, they're almost here. They're almost here. And then everybody would get ready. So it says, then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. That was fast. Here's what I'm reading into it. and I may be reading too much. So I want you guys to take this with a grain of salt. It sounds like even after they got a warning that they were coming, there was another delay. Not an extreme delay, but long enough for a 15 minute burn to start wearing off. Does that make sense? Their lamps are already going down. And they're going, wait a second, I thought he was supposed to... I just got the warning. Where is he? We expected right when we hear that, he's going to show up and we're going to go in. So I already lit my lamp. Now they're starting to panic because it's going longer. Maybe they're now in minute 13 and it's starting to burn down and they start panicking. So what do they do? Uh, It says, the foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, that sounds rude. It's not. It's practical, and here's why. It's not like they're going, well, it's my oil. You don't get any of my oil. And there was an argument. It was very simply this. The couple's going to come by, and they want light. They want a show. That's why we're standing here with torches. If I give you half of my oil and I use half of my oil, then all of us will get halfway and burn out at the same time. Then the couple has nothing but darkness. Wouldn't it be wiser for five of us to have lit torches the whole way while you and you need to go buy some? Do you understand? It was not a rude thing. This was merely a practicality of going, this is about the couple. This is not about us. If I was just buying by myself, I could share oil with you, but we're supposed to give them light. That's the point. That's why we're carrying the lamps in the first place. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. Oops, that's not good. What does it mean? Well, it could mean this. There are some things that you can't borrow. There's some things you can't scramble for. Because when they're going to buy oil, what time of night is it? Midnight. I don't know how many stores are open at midnight in the ancient world. So they're going to have a really hard time getting oil. Now, are we all trying to relate this a little bit to stuff in our lives? Let's say Jesus is talking about his return, and now suddenly you want to get in. Is that something you can scramble for? Because all of us love this idea of deathbed conversion, right? Deathbed conversion, yeah, everybody loves the thief on the cross, right? Live like hell. Oh, then all of a sudden, there's Jesus. i got to get saved at the last moment. That'll be awesome. Then I have the best of both worlds. Really? You think so? Is that going to work out for you? Because here's why. There's a couple of main reasons why I don't think that'll work out. Two of them. Ready? Number one, it's called, oh, I didn't see that bus coming. That's first reason. Okay. In other words, you have no idea when your deathbed is. Number two, what does it convey to, what does it convey to God? I want to do my own thing. I want to be all about me. And then the last second, I want to use you for fire insurance. I'm not so sure that conveys the love that you're trying to convey. I think it's called using someone. And so, no, it's not going to fly. So this whole I'm going to get saved later gig is not going to work. No, you come to Jesus now. You engage with Jesus while you can. See, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to let God know you love him. You don't use God. That's not okay. And it's not going to work at the last second. Jesus is on his way. I got to hurry up and repent. That is not going to convey. If salvation is about relationship, if salvation is about love, you can't hurry up and love someone. It's about building it, it's about engaging with, it's about understanding who he is. And you're not going to have that in an instant. But the thief on the cross did. You know what? His world situation was totally different than yours. His world situation may well have been. I know about a little bit about this Messiah thing, but I don't know what's going on. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm dying. Wait a second. There's the guy standing right there. I'm engaging with him for the first time in my life. I had no idea. I want to be with you, Lord. Yes, I'm in heaven now. Okay. that may not be your scenario because you know what? He may not have known anything about Jesus. Well, you just ruined it by coming to church today. Shouldn't have showed up. Because now, you know, <laughs> Okay, so we need to understand it's not about scrambling. It's not about scrambling. The virgins who were ready, it says, went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, sir, sir. They said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you now. He either means that literally or figuratively. Literally, it could have been, hey, you're a bunch of acquaintances, lots of people are involved in this, and honestly, since you weren't part of the procession, I don't know if you guys are just here to start trouble. No, you're not getting in. could have been literal, or it could have been figurative, where he goes, I do know you guys, but you clearly did not take this seriously. This is our big day. We asked everybody to get ready. We gave everybody everything they needed to have. And you know what? You're screwing around. You don't think it's important. You're not putting any effort into it. So you know what? No, I'm not going to reward that. We are done here. Boom. Either way, the door's shut. And it's not opening. No matter how you look at it. Verse 13, therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. That's why I said this parable is not about falling asleep. Everybody fell asleep. This is about being prepared so it's okay to fall asleep. What's the heart of the parable? Remember, these are not allegories. Every little detail doesn't mean something. What's the heart of the message we move forward with? Are you prepared in your spirit? Are you living as if God is so? Are you living in a way that you are prepared for God to call on your life? Are you living like Christ to where when he says, go, you're ready to go? Is that what you're doing? That is the heart of the message. Are you prepared in your day to day life? Or do you need like a year ramp up time warning, right? Second story, the parable of the talents, much more popular, much more well known. As a matter of fact, what we, when we talk about stuff like, Hey, I have the talent to draw or I have the talent to do music. It was very influenced by this story, but that's not the only thing he's talking about here. So let's take a look at it. Verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey that's supposed to relate to Christ dying on the cross, raising again, going to the right hand of the Father and being gone for a while. Who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. If you want to blow your mind, dwell on this concept. God lets you do significant stuff. I think that's weird. We all know very well that if you want something done right, what? You do it yourself. Especially if you're God. You're better at it. Right? Right? <laughs> If you, if the, really the goal was to save everybody, rip open the sky and scream at them, it'll be awesome. You just rip open the sky as God and go, I'm here, get saved, right? Because more people get saved. Why in the world would you allow missionaries to move out and working through people loving on each other? Why would you do that? What a waste. If really the ultimate goal is results, why would you involve people at all? Because really, they're not going to do it very well. They're always going to mess it up. They're always going to trip over their own feet. They're never going to handle it the way that you would handle it. They're not as good as you are. But that was never the point. God never needed anybody. He just wants to be with you. He wants to involve you because He loves you. That's the whole reason why we're doing this stuff. But He entrusts things to us that are very significant. What do we mean? Well, look at the next part of the story. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Two major things right there. Number one, what's a talent? A talent is not a coin. A talent is a weight. Now, we don't do this in our culture. We don't have weights that represent money. Okay, a talent, now it changed within the regions and it changed within the years. So it was everywhere from 40 pounds... 285 pounds of something was a talent. So they would write you a note and say, you're going to get this much. And then they would give you pounds of something now of what? Well, it could have been copper. It could have been bronze. It could have been silver. It could have been gold. The most common was silver. So let's use that in our scenario. You get certain amount of pounds. Let's take a middle number. So it was 40 to 85. Let's grab 75. Okay. You get 75 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver per talent. He just gave a guy how many? Five. That's a lot of cash. Are we all clear on that? That's an enormous amount of money that he's supposed to go and engage in business and build his master's kingdom with. So he entrusted him with something rather significant. And indeed, God gives us really important stuff to do. Now, he works with us. All the heavy lifting is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is very true. But he lets us play with him. That's pretty amazing. Meanwhile, we're causing havoc and causing trouble and doing it wrong. But he just wants to be with his kids. So he involves us. That's pretty neat. So how did it go? Well, verse 19. After a long time, the master of the servants returned. Think Jesus was trying to make a point? Yes. After a long time... The master of the servants returned. Uh, Excuse me. I skipped verse 16. Huh? Let's jump back to 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work, and he gained how many more? He gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. That's weird. Why would you do that? Well, he says one thing. His master says another thing. So... I'm not quite sure who to believe, but let's start running scenarios in our minds. Why would he do this? Well, he says later on he was afraid. So perhaps he was afraid of the banking system, right? Which is rather appropriate for today. Yeah. Literally back then. The banking system was not up and running. So when you hear phrases talking about bankers and interest, there was not an official banking system that was going on. It was much more like loan sharking. It was the idea of very risky. You hand it to somebody. They give you some money back. Hey, thanks for loaning that to me. It was very, very risky. Maybe this guy didn't want to ruin it. He didn't want to do it wrong. So he just did nothing. He just panicked, hit it in the ground, said, whatever. The guy's going to show up. I'll give him his stuff back and we'll be cool. I don't think that was the reason, but that's a reason he's going to argue. I think the next reason is rather significant. I think it was too much effort. Here's what I think he did it for. I think he looked over at his one talent, and even though it was kind of a big deal, because it was 75 pounds of silver, he looked at how loaded his master was. And he went, what does it matter? I mean, look at what that guy has. He's handing out to his slaves five talents of silver apiece. Are you kidding me? Do you understand how many pounds of silver that is? This guy is so loaded. He makes money everywhere he goes. This guy is so rich, so wealthy. Whatever I do with my one talent, it's not going to matter. It's not going to change his bottom line. I'm not going to get huge credit for it. It's not a big deal. So you know what? Forget it. It doesn't matter. And he buried it. Are we all starting to put this together in our minds as to what Jesus might be talking about? How many of you feel that way, right? I believe that these talents represent anything God has entrusted to a human being. That means your kids, your job, your time, your talents, your abilities. Every single thing that you have been given by God, you are to steward for his purpose. But you don't think it's a big deal, huh? Why do I got to pray? Who cares? God's going to do what he's going to do. Why do I gotta bother being in ministry? Either they're gonna get saved or they're not gonna get saved. Doesn't matter. Why do I even got to bother trying to do this? It's not going to make a difference. Who am I? I'm no big deal. I can't do it. Do you understand that results don't matter in this context? It's not about results. It's about effort. God handles results. We can go through life as believers with joy and excitement and adventure because God's taking care of the ultimate results. We don't have to sweat that. We just have to put our whole heart into it because he's looking for effort. Everybody can put effort in. Remember, it's never been about results. If it was about results, he would have done it himself. You are not held accountable for whether or not you make a great ministry or save people. You've never saved anyone. And you never will. You are not held accountable for building the kingdom great. That's God's job. Your job is to be obedient and use what he gave you with all your heart. He then says this. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents and I've gained five more. Master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came master. He said, you entrusted me with two talents. See that I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Pause. He didn't give them the same. And yet they got the same reward. Did you see that exact same phrase? Doesn't matter where you made two or you made five. Nobody cares. It's did you put it to work? That's all that mattered. The exact same reward for two different amounts, dramatically different amounts. When God gives all of us something different, don't you understand how absolutely absurd it is to ever try to measure yourself against someone else to see whether or not you're doing good for the kingdom? What a waste. Why would you ever look at me to figure out whether or not you're useful to the kingdom? We got different stuff. You don't make five if he gave you two. You're only supposed to make two. I'm not supposed to look at you and wonder whether or not I'm significant to the kingdom. You got different stuff than I did. So it seems rather silly to keep looking back and forth at another human being trying to figure out if you're doing a good job. Ask your father in heaven. Because if you're putting all your effort in, you're being wise, you're getting advice, and you're searching out the things of God, he is more than pleased. Don't you get it? And it says... Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. Went out, hid your talent in the ground. And Here's what belongs to you. Did he know his master? Because it's really weird because the other guys seem to really like their master. And this guy seems to go, I knew you were a hard man. You're a tough guy. You're brutal to work for, blah, blah, blah. He starts talking about him. You can imagine the other guys are like, who are you talking about? That guy? I like that guy. Here's what also is weird. Did you notice that all the rewards they got equaled more responsibility? Isn't that kind of funny? As a matter of fact, Luke tells a similar parable of Jesus. Now, it's real close, but it's not identical, so I didn't combine the accounts. Where there's ten servants, he gives them all a little bit smaller amount of money, and then he rewards three of them, and he... It says, you did really good with this. I'm now going to put you in charge of five cities, in charge of ten cities. But regardless, the reward was always more work. Isn't that bizarre? You're like, I don't want more work. I tried to do a really good job so I wouldn't have to do any more work. This is dumb. Okay, if this is referring at all to heaven, don't you understand that it blows out our view of what heaven is? We always buy into this Old Testament concept of rest. And is rest accurate? Yeah, there is a certain amount of rest. And yes, I would imagine in affinity you can take a 10-year nap. <laughs> and it's not going to be a big deal. And if you want to rest, that's totally cool. However, that is not the purpose of heaven. Heaven is actually about doing stuff. Stuff that matters. Stuff that changes. Stuff that, that, that moves with how you work with it. And you go, what are you talking about? I thought all that stuff was done away with. Why? First of all, when it talks about a new heavens and a new earth, what's the point in having a new earth if it's just like a new heaven? Not only that, but when God created Adam and Eve, didn't he put them in a garden that was without sin, yet there was a bunch of stuff to do? And when they tended the garden, it made the garden different. It was significant. It mattered. Our problem with work is that it doesn't matter. That's our frustration. But imagine a world where what you did mattered. And you were fulfilled. And you were satisfied. And you would be able to rest easy knowing that you've done something well. See, work is not the problem. It's the lack of satisfaction that's the problem. That will be corrected. But heaven is about adventure. Heaven is not about clouds and it's not about lame instruments. Right? Which, if you're a harpist, you're totally offended. I'm very sorry. Very sorry. So this guy says, I hit it in the ground. I didn't do anything. You can't hold me accountable. I didn't do anything. Here's your answer. Doing nothing is doing something wrong. Doing nothing is doing something wrong. You're making a choice. How did the master feel about it? His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, gather where I have not scattered seed. In other words, I'll use your own words to hang you. So you knew I was a tough guy, right? Well, then why didn't you do anything? So you knew that I make money where I don't even work. Then why didn't you try? Why didn't you do something? Take the talent from him. Give it back to the one who has 10 talents for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ooh, that's not good. You don't want to be gnashing. (laughs) Gnashing is bad, right? As a matter of fact, in the parable in Luke, this is what the king said. Bring my enemies and kill them in front of me. God's a little tense, right? You do not mess with wasting what God gave you and entrusted you with. It's a big deal to God. What's our heart of this parable? What are we going to take and move on with? Are you prepared in the purpose of your life? Are you living out your purpose and calling as salt and light in this world? Because if you're not, then you're salt without flavor. And what in the world is that for? That was his point. Are you living the life of a believer and a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's why you're on this earth. Not for results. But to engage in effort with your Lord. That's why we're here. Last story verse 31. When the son of man comes and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Let's pause. This is a very anti-goat message and I'm very angry about it. When you try to minister in the farm, they're just all turned off. I'm just letting you know right now. I'm just kidding. Okay, why why are we separating goats and sheep? What what are you talking about? Well, it's only a story about separation. So we use a common element that they all go, oh, I totally get it. Sheep and goats look really, really similar in this area. They're all speckled. They're brown. They're different. They all kind of look very, very similar. So it takes a semi-trained eye to go, goat, 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 sheep, 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 goat, goat, sheep, goat, sheep. Okay, the rest of us are like, uh, fuzzy thing. Uh, Other fuzzy thing. They all kind of look the same. I don't care. Okay, here's the point of why they're goats and sheep and why they have to be separated because only a trained eye can tell who is heaven-bound and who is not. Only a trained eye can tell whether you're headed for glory or you're headed for destruction. Only God knows that. Quit looking at other people and trying to make that decision. You don't know. Oh, he has an awesome ministry. doesn't matter. God can look through and go, save, 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 not. Not, 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 save. Save, not. And it's going to be totally different than what you assume. Human beings do not know. You can look at the fruit, you can examine, but ultimately you don't know. Only God knows. And He will do the separation. What is this judgment? Talks about all the nations coming before him. And then in verse 34, it says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. What are we talking about? What judgment is this? We only got two options. Kate, let me try to lay this out for you. Okay, I'm going to try to do a timeline. This is a visual thing, so you've got to follow with me, all right? So, let's say beginning of time is on my left, way over here on your left. And we then have uh, history, the church age, and now the standard view... Now, it's not everybody's view, and in the the year of Revelation, we'll be studying that book and talking a lot about this timeline in depth. But uh, the standard way of looking at it is that it goes to the church age, and then at some point, the tribulation starts. Okay, now we all know that in the Bible as, ooh, the scary seven-year period, right? Everybody's got that, ooh, bad stuff happens, horrible things go on, Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, that whole thing. That occurs in a seven-year period, and then after that, Jesus comes back and sets up an earthly kingdom where he's visibly reigning on earth for how long? A thousand years, it's called the, the millennium. Okay, so the millennium, he reigns for a thousand years, Satan is bound for a thousand years, at the end, Satan is released, tries to deceive people. Doesn't work out so hot. God lays a smack down, throws them into the eternal lake of fire. Right. And that's kind of where we move on. Now there's two views as to what this judgment is. Either it is the great white throne judgment, which talks about believers and non believers. That's one view, or it is what's called the millennial judgment. And by the way, in most conservative scholars nowadays, believe that is what this is talking about. I'm not totally convinced, but what the millennial judgment is after the tribulation period, when Jesus comes down to set up his earthly kingdom, he will determine who gets to move into the thousand year reign and who does not. Okay. So those are your two options. Which one is it? I don't know, but you're going to see that I'm going to lean towards one side rather than another here in a moment. But notice what the separation is all about. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Stop. Do you understand why people buy into a workspace mentality? What is the reward for doing stuff? If you only focus on these kind of passages and you don't look at Scripture as a whole, you're going to get really lost. You're going to start thinking, oh, the way to get to heaven is to do good stuff. No, that's not what it says. It looks like that's what it says, but that's not true. But we move forward. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. They don't know they were working for Jesus. So first of all, that whole concept of trying to do good stuff is blown out of the water because they didn't know they were doing good stuff. Are we all clear on that? So first of all, they didn't know they were serving Jesus. It was, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, well, you've been working with my kids this whole time. Oh, I had no idea. They all don't have any idea. And that's the point of the parable is you're not supposed to know you're doing it because you always try to do it to manipulate God. So he's saying, no, you're supposed to do it just because that's who you are. Right? But then what happens? He said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Your view of what this judgment is all hinges on how you read that line. Who are these brothers of mine? You've got five options. Ready? Here you go. You need to pick one of these. Number one, is it all the needy people in the world? People that are really hurting and in distress. Specifically those people. That's number one. Number two, is it the apostles and the Christian missionaries? Meaning, when God says someone specifically out in the world to break new ground, do you receive them well? That was a big view in history. Number three, another big view in history, and as a matter of fact, one of the largest views right now, is that it's how you treated the Jews in the tribulation. You're like, what? Remember I told you, it all depends on where we're at. If it's after the seven-year tribulation, whoever gets into the kingdom has everything to do with the Jewish people. So it's how you treated the Jewish people in that seven-year tribulation as to whether or not you get to join in on their celebration with their king. The millennium is all about the Jews, in my opinion but we'll talk about that next year. How do you treat the Jews? That's a big view. Do I agree with that? Hmm. I don't know. Number four, is it the disciples of Christ specifically? That was another huge view in history because he said these brothers of mine and they thought, well, he's talking about the 12. Or number five, is it all people in general? I'm, I'm a number five guy. And I'm a number five guy for a couple of reasons. One is I mentioned earlier, I'm paranoid. Okay. So I have this really, I have this really psycho view now that every human being that I meet, and that includes all of you, I believe that you're one of two classifications of people. Either you're an angel incognito, right? Or you're somebody that Christ desperately loves. Either way, I'm totally responsible and you're a test. Okay. So now normally when I drive down the road, anyone broken down is an angel, I just want you to know. And all the time, I'm like, Lord, sorry. And I just drive right on by. And I'm like, you know, and the angel's like, you blew that test, buddy. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. And I'm like, dude, you can fly home. Let it go. You know, now, if it is a real person, gosh, I feel terrible. But... Anyway, I always assume it's an angel. i am kind of bought into that Hebrews view. It said you entertain angels unaware, you know, that kind of thing. So I view it's always a test. So every human being, whether they're an enemy, whether they're something that stands completely against what I believe in, I always feel like it's just an angel dressed up in human clothes, and he just goes, what are you going to do with me? Do you really love your God or not? I'm a test. So you're going to love me? You're going to take care of me? You're going to care for me? Every time I see anyone that's down and out or hurting, I immediately go, Jesus is hiding. That's totally Jesus. And I cannot misuse that person i cannot harm any person do you understand what that does it creates a really weird worldview for me it's every time i do harm somebody i know i'm harming someone of god so that's very unusual for me do i harm people yes and do you understand that i realize what a great violation that is because it's some of jesus's loved people that i've just hurt by my life i believe that we are held accountable for how we treat people Have you ever felt as a parent that you don't need anything from the other neighborhood kids, so what you really want is them to play with your kids and love on your kids, and that makes you feel better? Okay, that's God, right? That's God constantly going, you know what, I don't need anything from you, but can you play with my kids? That'd be great, because that makes my heart happy. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry... You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That last phrase is why I'm not buying into the millennial judgment issue. It's way too eternal in concept. It doesn't seem to me. And then for a thousand years they did this. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. And maybe I'll change my tune with more study. All I know is this is a parable and there's one main point. Are you prepared in your heart? Do you live out the love of Christ? Because the what you truly believe will come out of you. This is not works based. This is root based. In other words, if you're an apple tree at the core, you produce apples. It's a natural outpouring. This is saying Is there any evidence? Is there any fruit? Is there any love coming out of you? Do you know me? Because if you do, that's how you're going to act. You're naturally going to love on people, you're naturally going to care for people. Of course, you do this because you're a believer. You're not doing this to earn your way into heaven. You're doing this because you're connected to heaven. That's what it's about. Are you prepped in your heart for the coming of Christ? Now, I want to close with two thoughts. The first one is you have not aged at all during the service because it's so incredibly cold. (laughs) I just want you to know right now, I don't know why it is so cold in here, but it is really cold in here. Second thing is far more biblical. (laughs) When you own it, you're going to live it. If you don't believe it, you're not going to live it. That's it. That was the whole message. Woo. Could have saved us a lot of time if I would have just said that at the beginning. (laughs) Right? But does it get more complicated than that? You're ready for Jesus because you know he's real. You know he's here. You know he's in your life. He's standing right here. He's in our hearts. He's in our lives. He's alive and active. If we live as if he's true, then we're going to be ready. But if you blow it off and you don't care and you're ignoring it, it doesn't matter to you. Then no, you're not going to be ready. It's simple as that. Do you own it? You want to find out what you truly believe? Work it backwards. Examine your life. Figure out what you're living and work it backwards. And that's what you truly own. There you go. You've got to own Jesus. Then it doesn't matter if you need to nap, if you need to rest, if you need to work, if you need to have a family, if you need to do your day-to-day activities, because you're all in all the time. I don't care what time here shows up. You are ready. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for an encouragement, Lord. That you do pay attention to all that we do. That, Lord, we want to live in a world where it matters what we do. We don't want to live in a world where nothing matters and where it's all pointless. That, Lord, thank you for entrusting us with the amazing things that you've given us. That, Lord, we do believe it's significant. We do not want to waste it. We do want to love rightly. We do want to live rightly. Not to earn your love, but to reflect your love to the world. And to fulfill the greatest purpose for why we are here. We are extensions of You, Jesus. May we act like it. In Jesus' name, Amen.